The text for the message this morning is Genesis 35, verses 16 to 29, the last part of Genesis 35. The last several months, we've been going through Genesis in a series. It began with Isaac mirroring Rebekah, and we end the series now with Isaac's death at the end of Genesis 35. It's on page 29 of the Bible the ushers were handing out, page 29, Genesis 35, verse 16. Hear the word of God. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, since our lives have a beginning and an end, we often compare them to a journey. We talk about the journey of, of our life. And if you draw out this journey, you would, you would have times where you were up and there were times where you are, are down. It's like walking on a, on a hilly road. There's mountains and there's valleys. There's milestones and there's goals ahead of you. And although we have many happy times in our lives, it is difficult to forget what Peter said when he said we're sojourners, we're exiles in a hostile world. And if we ourselves do not suffer very much because of physical and mental health concerns, broken relationships, as sorrows and tears, things that we face in this life, we know people who are facing those things. The way home, we say the way home on our journey has many tears. And so we cling to the words that we read in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
We cling to the words that we read that were on the screen as we entered the building, that we are looking forward to the promise of a future glory that outweighs our present troubles on this earth. Our text today is about a journey. It's the last part of Jacob's pilgrimage that brought him up north and then back down, and he finally ends in his father's house with all those names, Mamre, Kiriath Arba, Hebron. You can see it's been there for a long time. Jacob is in the right place. He has placed his hope in the Messiah to come. He is obediently taking hold of all that God had promised him. But the sorrows, the tears of regular life still make it difficult for him. And as our text moves through Jacob's relationships with with Rachel and with Benjamin and with Reuben and then his father Isaac, we see that the text, the passage, it begins and it ends with death. And in the middle, it describes the pain of childbearing and rebellious children. Even though in the end, Jacob made it home, we could say home to, to Hebron, to his father's house. He doesn't really get to see very much good around him. The text doesn't speak of all the good things, but it draws attention to the difficult things. It makes us ask, why did he keep going? How can we keep going in the midst of the sorrows and sadness in this life? Together with Jacob, we know that there is an eternal God who has created the world and who guides his church through this journey all the way to our heavenly home. You read Psalm 73, it even speaks of God holding us by our hand and and afterward taking us up to glory. That is the hope of the gospel salvation that Jacob had that again we can hear preach to us this afternoon. And I preach under the theme, Christ brings Jacob, that's his church, through the difficult journey to his heavenly home. We'll see that he is the hope of suffering mothers, looking specifically at Rachel and Jacob. He is the healer of broken relationships, looking at what the text says about Reuben and Jacob. And then finally, he is the guarantee of our resurrection And there we'll look at Isaac and Jacob. As we read this passage, you see how the Holy Spirit puts us beside Jacob. Puts us beside Jacob as he journeys south from the anointed pillar in Bethel. Israel has just seen God. Perhaps Rachel was already pregnant when God told Jacob, his family, to be fruitful and multiply. But now we read in verse 16 that Rachel went into labor. And we just read it. Things do not go well. Things do not go as she had imagined when she asked for a second son when Joseph was born. Chapter 30, verse 20, or 30, verse 24. And then she dies while giving birth to the child. Her last experience on earth as a mother is marred with suffering and pain. And the name Ben-Oni, which can mean son of my sorrow, 
captures so clearly what mothers until this day have experienced and often continue to experience. Although today it is less common for mothers to die in childbirth, we could still say that in a sense our children are ben own or children that come into the world because of the sacrificial love of a mother and a father. It starts with the reminder of the fall into sin with the, the challenges of pregnancy and the pains of labor. And it continues as the children grow up, as we die to ourselves to bring up the next generation of children that can often cause more sorrow in our lives. Although we, we wish we could say that our children were always a blessing all the time, we have to be honest. And our text calls us to recognize and acknowledge that obeying the command of God to bring up children can be difficult. It is a sweet sacrifice, but sometimes when it happens, like we read in our text, that a mother dies in childbirth, or it happens maybe even this week again as a mother, you were overwhelmed with responsibilities, or as, as parents, you spend your days in anxiety because of traveling or suffering or rebellious children, many times the sacrifice is easier to see than the sweet. And our text shows that this has always been a part of the life of God's people. Jacob lost his most loved wife giving birth. We read in verse 18 that as her soul was departing to glory from her dying body, she gave birth to a son whose name Benoni could mean son of my sorrow, but it could also mean son of my strength. You can see that even in the footnote of some of your Bibles. Jacob named him Benjamin, which means son of my, my right hand, to make it clear that although there had been suffering and sorrow, there was also hope. Rachel's soul had continued on the journey and was suffering no longer. And Benjamin would always be remembered as a sign of her strength and Jacob's right hand. Although there had been sorrow and suffering, this child was also a blessing from the Lord. And Jacob's vision was looking to the future when he named son Benjamin that pointed to the birth of the hope of the suffering women, pointed to the birth of the promised Messiah. Jesus Christ. We read in the passage that the journey to the south, to his father's house, it took Jacob through Bethlehem. And although he could not have known the significance of the fact, we read in Genesis 35 verse 19 that in God's providence, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Obviously, this must be taken in the literal sense as a reference to their journey at that time. That's where they were in the world when, uh, when Rachel died. But when we put this text, Genesis 35, on the timeline of the history of redemption, 
we also see that they were on their way to Bethlehem in God's plan of salvation. Rachel died as the representative of the suffering mothers through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would later be born. United around the pillar of Rachel's tomb, the mothers of Israel, the mothers of the Old Testament, they identified with Rachel and they found their place in that woman in the vision of Revelation 12 that we read. That woman who was held up by God so that she could give birth to the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. The woman in Revelation 12 is that whole body of mothers in the Old Testament from Eve all the way to Mary. That whole body of mothers who were on their way to Bethlehem when the Virgin Mary eventually gave birth to Jesus. We see God's plan unfolding and where we stand in history with all of scriptures before us, we can see how God is, was driving all of history. How God is unfolding his promise through the centuries. And so we see Ruth marrying a man called Boaz who came from Ephrath in Bethlehem who gave birth to David's grandfather Obed and made Bethlehem the town of King David, which the prophet Micah names as the town where the Messiah would be born. Now sadly, the dragon who hated the Messiah that we read about in Revelation 12, he also heard the prophecies. And we read in verse 4 that he, he stood over the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour the child right away. And so he was trying to devour the children of the mothers of Israel. And we see that in the time of the Babylonian invasions. And if you look, read in Genesis 31, verse 15, we see that Rachel, or Jeremiah the prophet, tells us that Rachel was weeping for her children. To describe the mothers in Israel crying out in their suffering as their children were being carried out to exile. And then it happened one day when heaven spilled out over the fields surrounding Bethlehem as angels filled the sky singing glory to God. And we can imagine how the brilliance of these angels in the fields around Bethlehem, how they, how they could have lit up the pillar over which, over Rachel's bones, her tomb, is a somber reminder of her sorrow and death. The angels announce that by God's grace and mercy, that woman of Revelation 12, the Old Testament nation from Eve to Mary who had struggled for, for centuries in the pains of, of birth and, and bringing forth children, they had given birth to the hope of all suffering women, of all suffering people. The Son of God who came to crush the head of the serpent as God promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. 
the same time, when you look in Matthew chapter 2, you can see that the battle is not over yet. And as Matthew talks in in chapter 2 about the slaughter of all the male children, two years and under, when Herod came and and he killed all the children in Bethlehem, all the male children two years old and under, then Matthew writes about that and, and, and he says, it's Rachel weeping for her children. He quotes Jeremiah 31. And so we see, brothers and sisters, Rachel weeps on her way to Bethlehem. And God comforted the church with the promise of the Messiah born in David's line in Bethlehem. Rachel weeps in Bethlehem. And God comforted the church by sparing his son Jesus Christ who came and taught us as as he walked around in the promised land. He taught us about the forgiveness of our sins and, and, and he restores his church to fellowship with God. And Rachel weeps after Bethlehem. And God comforted his church by pouring out his wrath against his son on the cross even as Mary, his mother, stood on the side weeping. And he poured out his wrath against his son so that he might raise him up to new life and give him power to reign as eternal king. And Rachel weeps today. But she knows that every child that she raises up, even in the midst of of suffering and difficulty, Every child that she raises up to to know this Savior, Jesus Christ, to trust in Him, to repent from their sins, and to seek healing in His grace and mercy, will find themselves in the arms of a forgiving and a loving Heavenly Father. will be able to continue the journey into the glorious kingdom of our victorious King. And we see that in our, the next two points that our Lord Jesus is also the healer of broken relationships. That hope of the Messiah, that hope of Bethlehem is, is the scene that we have. We see that as Jacob is moving forward. And he kept on traveling past Bethlehem. He pitched the tent beyond the Tower of Eder, we read, which was somewhere on his way to his father's home in Hebron. And while Jacob was there, we read in our text that he was severely tested another time. And Reuben, his firstborn son, committed adultery with Bilhah, Rachel's maid, with whom Jacob had received the two sons, Dan and Naphtali. This was not merely a case of Reuben giving in to, uh, Reuben and Bilhah giving in to their, their passions And we need to understand that Reuben and Bilhah were not just sinning against the seventh commandment, but they were also sinning against the first, the third, the fifth, the sixth, and the eighth commandments. Adultery is idolatry, which is making another person's body to be more important than God himself. The specific sin that Reuben committed with his father's wife is clearly forbidden in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Because it caused blasphemy of God's name also among unbelievers. 
You see, even the unbelievers had a law that said if a sin like this was committed, the, the child would be completely cut out from the father's inheritance. It's in a, an old law that you can still look up online. It's called the Code of Hammurabi. Even the unbelievers knew this was an abomination. It's an act, a sin that reminds us of Absalom's contemptuous act with his father's concubines on the roof of his father's palace. And so we see how wicked this is. Reuben publicly rejected his father's rule and authority in the land. He publicly rejected his God in heaven and his Savior, Jesus Christ, his Messiah. Genesis 35 shows us how our journey home can turn into a hopeless quagmire of shame and rebellion and manipulation and brokenness through the abuse of the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy that God gave to a husband and a wife to enjoy. And when we think about this, we think about our own lives and the reality of this sin also today. On the one hand, it looks like any other physical sin. But when we start to study and read more and we read what, what the Lord Jesus teaches about it, what the Holy Spirit teaches in the New Testament, and all that he warns us about, we realize very quickly that it is, just, it is more than the sin of just two people spending some time in a tent together. Satan is again attacking his church using sexuality and the lusts of the flesh to control others, to break relationships, to, to mock, to expose the weak, to shame the people of God, to hide the grace of our Father in heaven. Is this an old problem? Of course it isn't. Brothers and sisters, as we hear the staggering numbers concerning the percentage of people who call themselves Christians and yet are breaking their marriage vows both before and after they get married. It is important to understand again how deadly adultery is for the church of God. It's an attack on the gospel of salvation. When a husband or a wife commits adultery, the consequences of this betrayal cause long-term trauma. It can be more difficult than having to deal with the death of a beloved friend or family member who served the Lord. Our text shows us that this has always been a part of the life of God's people. It has always been used by Satan himself to, to trip us up on the journey. Jacob recognized that Reuben's sin was a sin against the Lord himself. That's what David said after he committed adultery. Against you, O Lord, you only have I sinned. And when you look in Genesis 49, you can see in verses 3 and 4 that he told Reuben, even though he was the firstborn son, he would not be treated with the dignity or the preeminence that this position usually received because of the sin he committed. 
This was a very severe consequence that would make his scandalous behavior remembered and paid for throughout the generations. Yet the mention of his sin also gives hope to everyone who has noticed that in God's mercy through Jacob, he did not cut Reuben completely out of the promise. He did not completely cut Reuben or his descendants out from the hope of the Messiah. Having seen his repentance, having seen how Reuben treated Joseph, and you could read that in the chapters that come, the Lord allowed Reuben and his descendants to remain a part of the people of God. And once again, we see that relationship between God in his justice and in his mercy. We see that balance between the severe consequences for sin and a merciful way back for those who repent. This is encouraging for us on our journey. Perhaps you have been deceived by the evil one. Perhaps you have given in to the the lusts of the flesh, declaring war on God, declaring war on his church through sexual immorality in your life. You have broken many relationships in the past, in the present, and also even in the future. But the most serious is your relationship with God. And our text again reminds us on this journey that if you do not repent, then you are already in the place of your death. The swamp of adultery has swallowed you up. Bethlehem means nothing for you. You have exchanged that which can be seen today for the unseen of the resurrection. And the good news, the good news is that this doesn't have to be the end for you. The good news is that you can hear your Savior calling you even now to repent of your sins and to look to Bethlehem, to look to the Messiah of Bethlehem. It wasn't the end for Reuben. The Lord Jesus Christ heals the broken relationship. He allows his battered and battle-weary and embittered and betrayed children to continue. For his blood was shed on the cross to pay for our sins. He pays for the sins of everyone who recognizes their sins and confesses them to God and asks God for forgiveness and trusts that God will heal, will hear him and heal him. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, there is always a way back. Even for Reuben and the abominable sin that he committed in his wicked rebellion, there was a way back in the blood of Jesus Christ. And when his blood, when your faith in him permeates that outer shell and seeps into your heart to transform your life, when you are eager to live with the consequences of your past sins, to to face them, head on, when you seek restoration and peace with God and your neighbor, there is a way back. We have seen it and we will see it again. Since God changes the heart of the repentant adulterer, they begin to love their Savior Jesus Christ 
He makes it possible. He makes it possible for all of us who have been hurt to continue on in the journey. Though the pain of betrayal is paralyzing, though Jacob's sorrow in the journey never really went away, he never really forgot what happened, he did manage to move on and even speak to his son Reuben again. In Genesis 35, this, this last part remi- remi- reminds us that even in our the pilgrimage and, and as we get near to home after so many experiences in life that, that these physical things that we still continue to struggle with today, they can hurt us a lot. They have serious spiritual consequences. And we must not undermine, brothers and sisters, the power of sexual immorality and adultery. And we must not ignore them. We must call one another to repentance. For in Jesus Christ, there is hope. There is healing. There is forgiveness. That's important to know as we head on and we look past our home here on earth to our heavenly home. At the end of Genesis 35, Jacob arrives at his father's house. It's around 20 years after his father had given what he thought was going to be his deathbed blessing to Jacob and Esau. Isaac ended up living another 43 years after he thought he was going. He lived another 20 years after Jacob returned home from his pilgrimage. Isaac would live even 12 years after Joseph was sold into slavery. So Jacob was there in Hebron with his father for for many years. There were good times as well, and the the text does not focus on those times, but it's good to, to see that also in his journey. Jacob had this time, and his son, his brother Esau, would come, and he was there at the time of Isaac's funeral. And when we read about Isaac's death, we see that it's very similar to the description of Abraham's death that you can read in Genesis 25. It's a, it's a way of, of speaking of the death of the patriarchs. You can see that it mentions his age, and if you compare it, you can see that Isaac was five years older than Abraham when he died. Both accounts tell us that their sons were present. For Isaac, it was Jacob and Esau. For Abraham, it was I, uh, for Isaac, it was Jacob and Esau. For Abraham, it was Isaac and Ishmael who were present, and they were there to bury him. We both we read in both that they breathed their last, and we read in both that they were gathered to their people, old and full of days. And it's especially this last part that, that points to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Although no explanation is given about the soul of Rachel that departs her body as she was dying, we read about Isaac that he was gathered to his people. It's verse 29. In the, in the first place, this is, is a reference to his bones that were put in the same tomb as Abraham and Sarah. But we know from other places in Scripture that Abraham and Sarah were still very much alive 
when Isaac died. Their tombs, their, their bones were in the tomb, but they were alive. And we know this because our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, speaking with the Sadducees, defending the resurrection, he said that when God talked to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, and since God is a God of the living and not of the dead, we know and believe in the resurrection of the dead. You can be sure that you will take your place at the seat of the banquet. You take your seat at the banquet in heaven together with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. You too will be, look to the promise of being gathered to your people. And we see that already in our text. Brothers and sisters, it's important to remember that our journey here on earth, so filled with suffering, so filled with disappointment, so filled with sorrow, it does not end here on the earth. Jacob knew that, and we also can know that. Jacob was reminded that although he was, was home, he had not arrived at his final destination. And you see, brothers and sisters, we never really arrive here on earth, do we? When Jacob had tried so hard, to find a way in his own strength, an angel fought with him and humbled him in the night and showed Jacob his sin and his weakness. When Jacob humbly and faithfully followed his God, his beloved wife and had died in childbirth, his oldest son had betrayed him by committing adultery with his concubine. The enemies around hated and feared his family. The tension between the brothers and Joseph was building up. His old age was creeping up and pretty soon he would die just like his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. Jacob was home, but he had not arrived at his final destination. There was more for him. And we who know the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know what that more is. And that's good to remember when we face suffering in this life. It's good to remember when things are good and we invest all our time on our home, our retirement home here on the earth. Brothers and sisters, there is so much more for us in Jesus Christ. Like us, Jacob looked to his Savior, Jesus Christ, and he knew that when he died and his soul departed from his body, he would be gathered to his people and finally arrive in his eternal home. We know even more than Jacob because we know the mediator who has gone before us. We know how much he loves us. We know that his work was finished and it was good. The hardships that Jacob faced in life are normal. We continue to face them with our own bodies and, and in our own lives. And we can also keep on traveling forward if we are looking forward to the promise of eternal life. Eternal life makes you realize, brothers and sisters, that it is worthwhile to make sacrifices to raise up your children in the Christian faith where they can share in the beautiful message of the gospel. Eternal life 
makes you realize it is worth it to avoid sexual temptations and hate even the garment stained with immorality because there is more. It's not worth it to be stuck here. Eternal life makes you realize that old age is not the end of the journey. Truly, we can say with joy, the victory of Jesus Christ brings us through the hardships of our difficult journey to our heavenly home. Amen.